So as we've been working our way through these catechism questions, uh, again, I just want to encourage you that, uh, that some of these questions, they might seem like they have very simple answers, but a lot of times our, our theology can be like a, a box of jigsaw puzzle pieces. You know, we know what the picture is supposed to look like, but until we actually do the work of putting them together, it's hard to synthesize what we know, what we've come to learn about our God. So this is very useful to us. This is part of discipleship, to think carefully through the different aspects of what we believe to be true. And then in that process, as we go to, at times, refine what we think about our God, that we might strengthen our respect for him, our appreciation for who he is and how holy and different he is from everything else. And so we're going to be tackling two questions tonight. Uh, Both these questions have to do with the same subject. The subject we've been delving into is called hemartiology. Hemartiology is the study of the fall of man and what sin does to us and to our relationship with God. And so with that, we're going to read question 18. I will read the question, and then we'll have you read the answer. There we go. So question 18 is, What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? And the answer to question 18 is, The sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. And then the second question really flows nicely out of that question. This is question 19. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? So this talks about the scope of the impact of the fall. And the answer is, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So if that language is a little old-timey, a little hard to process just because people don't speak with such formality, don't worry about that. We're going to kind of break it down as we go. So we want to remember and keep in mind what we've been learning up to this point. And uh, I would turn your attention back to the answer to question 17, which is what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So whenever we don't conform our hearts to the things that God commands. Anytime we transgress the law and do what the law tells us not to do, then we are committing sin. We are engaged in sin. The creation that God made did not start out as a lawless creation. It wasn't a a fighting, seething, teeming creation with all sorts of tension and hatred. Uh, It was a good creation, a creation marked by harmony and beauty and order. So how did error and rebellion come to be introduced into the peaceful and pure creation that God made? So let's thumb to the beginning of our Bibles. We're going to look at uh, the narrative of creation starting in its third chapter. As you know, Genesis, the first book, deals with uh, original things quite a bit. And so if you're in chapter 3, we're going to be reading a chunk and then we'll kind of break down that chunk as it's, uh, I think, very useful to help us to understand how we should think of sin and the way that it impacts man. So I'll read this out loud for you, and it won't be on the screen, so I hope you have your Bible open up. I'm going to bounce around to some other scriptures that I will put up on the screen for you. Um, But for right now, uh, I want us all to be in Genesis chapter 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the, tree, is, of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the tree, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So as we reflect on that story, most of us have read through that story several times before. Let's ask some simple questions and try to dig out some clear answers. What were our first parents guilty of in this peaceful and serene and pure place called the garden? If you only consider the physical action, Adam and Eve were guilty of the heinous crime of eating the wrong fruit. Now, when you say it that way, it sounds a little, little small, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like some grave sin. Adam and Eve picked pieces of fruit from the one tree they were not allowed to, uh, by God to eat. They ate those pieces of fruit. And now the default position of mankind is sin and eternal damnation. Now some think of that as a pretty wild story. Shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? You would think that when the mankind fell, that, that it would be from something terrible like murder or or rape, or something really terrible and heinous. And so people have tried to paint God as an unreasonable tyrant by looking back at this fall of man and saying that his demands upon people were unreasonable. Now, as you likely know, there's actually more going on beneath the surface of the action than, uh, than just picking fruit and eating it, right? So let's take some time and try to understand the impetus behind the error. In Genesis 3, 6, we read, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So here we, we find in Genesis 3, the origin of the Apostle John's three warnings, which are famously recorded in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, you might recall reading there in the New Testament where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so here the Apostle John is trying to help us understand that sin has not changed over the course of humanity. By the time John is writing this, it's been thousands of years since Adam and Eve fell. But we're going to see that we still need to be aware of the same kinds of temptation, the same kinds of pitfalls that man fell into in the garden. The lust of the flesh. The woman, when you think back on chapter 3 of Genesis, the woman saw the tree was good for food. So she saw the fruit of this tree. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, and it's really inconsequential. She saw this fruit, and it, it seemed desirable to her. Her flesh wanted it. She craved the food. And so John warns us, beware of the desires of the flesh. He says, look out for the lust of the eyes. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, this fruit that was upon the tree. Even though she'd been warned not to want it, her eyes saw it, and the beauty of it drew her to it. And John warns us about the pride of life. We read in Genesis 3 that Eve saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. She had a desire to be wiser, perhaps even than the God who instructed her not to eat of this fruit, knowing that it would cause grave destruction, not only to her and Adam, but to their posterity, to all the people that would come after them. So there was a draw upon the heart of Eve. A yearning for something which the woman believed in some way that she didn't have. Now, ironically, think about this. Eve has plenty of fruit. If there is a hunger in her, she's been given tree after tree full with beautiful, luscious fruit that she can eat in this garden. Fruit that's untainted by disease or sickness. Fruit that is not uh, liable to make her sick. I mean, this is good stuff that God has given to her. This wisdom that she thought she needed. Of course, she was lacking wisdom in and of herself, but God was providing every wisdom for her that she needed. She lacked no important wisdom. He had told her, don't eat of that one fruit. There was a single threat in the garden, and it was that tree. So God had told her it was best for her not to eat of that tree. Being the greatest of all the creatures that God had made, Adam and Eve were the only things that bore the image of God. They were made in God's image. Unlike the coyotes and the giraffes and the birds of the, uh, the sky and the fish of the sea, none of those creatures, though impressive in their own right, none of them bore the image of God. That's something that only human beings were allowed to do and blessed to do. So she was already honored among all the created things. Even angels don't bear the image of God. So anything that Eve thought she lacked, she already had. Her rebellion against God and Adam's rebellion subsequently gained them nothing, nothing but hurt and pain. So the fruit was not just fruit. The fruit that they ate of was forbidden fruit. Okay? It was a part of a covenant agreement that God had made with Adam that he would bless Adam, that he would give him responsibility and dominion, but then in exchange for that, God would be the, the one voice that Adam obeyed and listened to, that his prohibitions would be followed happily by Adam. That was the agreement of the covenant of works in the garden. Because it was forbidden, 
It was deemed by the great creator to be unfit for human consumption. Now, there was temptation that played into this fall too, so we need to examine that. Chapter 3 of Genesis, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So mankind suddenly has a foe. He has an enemy. And this tempter is a formidable foe. We read in Revelation 22, it says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan. So this is not just a snake. I know it's been really popular recently in uh, historical scholarship to suggest that perhaps the snake was not actually Satan. But Revelation tells us clearly who that snake was. He is the foe of mankind. He is the fallen angel, Lucifer. And this serpent was highly motivated to do damage to this prize of God's, this human being that bore the image of God. He is a formidable foe. He was a former angel of light. We read in the book of Isaiah about how he, in his pride, tried to exceed the station that God had given to him. He wanted to be greater than God was, and he was able to convince a third of the heavenly hosts to fight against God. So think about how crafty and beguiling this creature is if he is able to convince people that there's something better even than heaven. Okay? A third of the angels were willing to risk the beauty and, and the comfort and the glory of heaven, and they fell with him. And so now that is what Adam and Eve are up against. This is no small threat. He is a master manipulator, and he plays right into Adam and Eve's weaknesses. We read in the New Testament... Probably forgetting a lot of my slides here. Yes, I am. All right, we read in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is a warning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church in the New Testament times. So even under the blessings of the New Covenant, temptation is a real threat to us. It is something that can derail our blessings. So how did Satan go about his task? Uh, back to Genesis 3 again, verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So one of his prime weapons is a question unanswered. The subtle persuasion of the serpent begins with a suggestion that the prohibition God had given was more restrictive than it actually was. Is God's law ever really that restrictive to us, friends? If we stop and really think about the laws that God gives, just think about the Ten Commandments for a minute. Is it unreasonable for God to tell us not to steal from one another? Is it a tyrant that says, do not go about snatching life from one another, that that we should not covet, that we should have a sense of gratitude for the things that we have and a sense of respect for the fact that God doesn't give us all the same things. Is it too much for us to be told not to take the great and holy name of God and to use it in unholy ways? Is that really that much for God to ask of us? His law is not too burdensome. In fact, His law is wonderfully good for us and protective to us. And yet here... Through a question, through a subtle doubt, this serpent is 
trying to get Eve to think differently about the God who up to this point has given her nothing but reasons for joy and faith. By verse 3, Eve herself is already following suit. She's listened to the serpent and she says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So even here we see evidence that there is a change in her thinking. She got the death part right. She understood that to rebel against God would mean to forfeit life. But she's already confusing God's prohibition with something more strict. She's saying, not only can I not eat of that tree, but I also can't touch the fruit, which is something that God never actually said. What do we call that in the church today? When we add to the law of God, we call that legalism. And it is oppressive when we add more law to what God has given to us. God's law is good as it stands. We don't need to improve upon it or innovate it. Righteousness from law is legalism. Man's law as God's law is legalism. And anything that unnecessarily hinders the freedom that God wins for us is legalism. We need to fight against those things. So what did the serpent offer our first parents in order to trick them, in order to beguile them into disobedience? He offers them, in verse 4, false safety. I think I have a slide for this. There you go. Did I go too far? He told Eve that she would not surely die. The warning that God had given to her in love, a warning meant to keep her from harm and loss of blessing, the serpent turns around and says the opposite to her. You shall not surely die. In other words, his message to her is, you know what, sin is not as serious as you think it is. And that lie has been parroted by the world, the fallen world that we live in ever since, that somehow God has over-exaggerated the seriousness of his laws, his commandments. And then if we break those commandments, it doesn't really lead to death. It doesn't really lead to judgment or, you know, damnation. Who believes that? That's what the world is trying to convince us. It's trying to convince us that sin is not nearly as serious as God says that it is. In addition to that, he dangled in front of Eve the allure of hidden wisdom. Verse 5, your eyes shall be opened. In other words, he suggested something that is actually true, that there were things unknown that she might know, that she might come to understand better. Eve was a creation, so Eve's knowledge of her world was very limited. That's not necessarily bad. If you are governed by a God who knows all things, treasures you, and is looking out for your good. When you have a, a, a God as a guardian, a God who loves you and cares for you, you don't need to know every single thing. And yet, Satan has already started to try to undermine her confidence in this God, who is her protector, her provider, her everything. And so here he says, you can actually have your eyes open and know the kinds of things that he knows that you do not yet know. He offers Eve a greater station. He tells her that you shall be like God. Now, this is a very, very tricky tactic on the part of the snake because now he is playing on her affections for the God that she should love and worship. We should have a, 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 an, a, an incredible affection towards God, a respect for him, and an awe and a wonder towards God. But what the serpent is doing here is he's trying to give Eve a covetous heart 
that desires to be the thing that she rightfully is worshiping and having affection for. He says, you can be like that God that you were made to honor and glorify. Now, it was suggested that perhaps God, by levying his prohibition against Adam and Eve, the serpent says, maybe he wasn't acting in your best interest. He says that with the subtle little phrase, for God knows. In other words, he knows that you might know more. He knows that you might be like him. So this final suggestion is Satan's attempt to turn God from protector and provider into enemy and oppressor. It is an abject lie, of course. And as soon as they eat of that fruit, it doesn't take very long for them to realize that they have been duped. They've been sold a falsehood. Because this God who does know more than them is a God who doesn't keep them down for their bad. He keeps them obedient to him for their good. So the serpent's suggestion is intoxicating to Adam and Eve. Both of them are, are enticed, but are they powerless to thwart those suggestions? James 4.7 says, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Pastor Paul preached on that just about a month and a half ago. So, I want to qualify this because these are New Testament promises given to who? Given to believers in Jesus Christ. So these encouragements in James 4.7 and in 1 Corinthians 10.13... They are encouraging to you if you are no longer under the headship of Adam, the first man who got you into being a sinner in the first place, who destined you to rebel against God. If you are now in Christ, then you have been given a power beyond yourself that can overcome the temptations of the devil. Adam and Eve, having not been fallen, had similar opportunity. They did not have to fall to Satan's beguiling ways but they did. And ever since that, things have changed. We need to understand that apart from Christ, not only can you not thwart the schemes of the devil, you have no choice but to live them out in your life. Apart from the the power of Christ that transforms the heart and the mind, we will do nothing but rebel against God. And we will often convince ourselves that even our rebellion against God is holy and moral and good. The deceit just adds to more deceit if we are not in Christ. And we will speak more about what it means to be in Christ in a few moments. Adam and Eve shouldn't be seen, friends, as sitting ducks. It's not like there was no chance for them. They had the disadvantage of little experience. It's true. They they were fresh. They were new. They had not lived long. They didn't even know what sin was. They, They didn't really have a concept of death because the place that they were living in was perpetual life. But the experience that they did have was far greater. Their experience was the face-to-face interaction with the manifestation of the living God. They walked with God in the cool of the morning. So what little experience they had in the world, this experience is greater than that. They knew God. They knew His love. They knew His power. They knew His kindness to them. That alone is all that a person should need. 
When you know the goodness and the perfection of God, then anything else that is offered to us from the outside should look like garbage compared to what God is. That still doesn't answer our initial question, what is so bad about eating a piece of fruit? Friends, it is enough that eating the fruit was in any way a violation of a command of God. That was all we really need to know. Upon their fall, God called them to himself. Remember what he said to them in the garden in Genesis 3.11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He appeals to his authority in their lives. Now, why does he have authority? It's not because he was elected president of Eden. Okay? It's not because human beings looked around and said, who should we follow? And they thought that God would be the greatest. The authority that he has over them is inherent because without his generosity and his life-giving power, they wouldn't even exist. Mankind owes their everything to God. When you were a child, did you ever ask your parents over and over and over again why they put the restrictions on you that they did? Why those rules needed to be followed? Why do I have to do it this way? Why do I have to eat these vegetables? Why do I have to go to bed? I've got tons of energy. Can't you see it just pouring out of my eyeballs right now? Did you ever ask your parents why? Oh, it comes out of the ears I'm hearing. Okay, not the eyeballs. Good, good to know, Adam. Thank you. And I'm sure if you were like me and asked that question dozens and dozens and dozens of times, you probably got a very similar response at some point down the line. Because I said so. I'm the dad. Or I'm the mom. And that is all you need to know. I said it. You need to respect it. Now, God is creator and sustainer. He of all beings in the universe has the right to declare, because I said so. Didn't he say so much to Job, who was himself an example of righteousness? Compared to men, he was a pretty righteous person. He loved the Lord God. He cared for worship of God. He he encouraged his family to give honor and glory to God. He was generous to others. He was a man whose word was upright in, in the gate, people respected what he had to say. And Job, as you probably know if you've read that book, was afflicted with some terrible misfortune, which actually was the providence of God allowing him to go through loss and suffering in such a way that he might show to our enemy, the serpent, that Job did not just love God because he got nice things from God. Job had learned to love God because of who God was. This is not an easy assignment for Job. And it carries on for days and days as he suffers the loss of his children, of his goods, of his resources, of his servants, of all these different blessings that have been poured into his life. He loses them. And then he loses his own health. His body's covered with boils. He is suffering to the nth degree. Three of his so-called friends come around him and they wait with him for a while. And then they begin to share their great wisdom with him, which turns out to be Come on, Job, what did you do wrong? Spill the beans, right? You must have sinned to deserve this, this great affliction that has come upon you. Job shows great patience in the face of this, this tragedy. And he's very patient and endures long, but eventually he begins to grow weak and weary. And he begins to cry out to God and ask God the why question. 
Why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to go through these things? And to many people's shock, when you read through the end of that book, God doesn't scoop Job up and just cradle him like a baby and say, you're right, you don't deserve to suffer like this. Nobody deserves to suffer this way. But instead, he calls out with a voice of power and says, who are you to darken my counsel with your words without knowledge? You don't know what you're talking about, Job. You listen to me, and I will tell you. And he proceeds to explain how great a God he is. And Job listens to this, and I can just imagine his countenance shrinking and shrinking and shrinking as God essentially says, because I decided it to be so, Job, because this is my plan. And you would think that at the end, Job would be just in tears, that he would say, who is this God that I thought I knew? And that he would, he would run away crushed, but that didn't happen at all. Job listens to his God and realizes that his God is right. Job realizes that he has no right to ask God why he has to go through what he goes through. God is sovereign. God gets to decide. And he says, I used to believe in you by faith, but now I know you from experience, essentially. And his faith increases in this God. And God, being sovereign, knew this would happen, blesses Job even greater than he was blessed before. And so this tragedy turns into a triumph. We may desire to see morality in terms of how did it really harm anyone, right? If something is immoral, it must do damage to people. There must be some reason why it's immoral that affects me in a negative way. But I want us to be careful not to downplay that rebellion to the life giver in any form is very serious. That itself is immoral. When we turn our back on a God who has all authority over us, then we are doing something that is inherently wrong and ugly and vile because every good thing proceeds from this perfect God. Deuteronomy 32, 6 says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? This is how we repay him with disobedience and disrespect. The fall of man was quite foolish. What had, gone do what had God done to make Adam and Eve question his motives or cause them to doubt his sincerity? All he had done was love them from the first moment they were made. He had met their needs. He had improved their already good station. You know, Adam was born into a beautiful garden with safety and provision. And yet God said, this can be better. This is not good for the man to be alone. And so he brought Eve from his side. He gave him a companion, one to share his existence with. This is the generosity of the God that they turned their back on. God had given them every reason to trust him and to not rebel. This fall was foolish. This fall was also greedy. They were not content with having the dominion, the proper companion that God had given, the honor of bearing God's image. God had given them so very much, their only response to that should have been, yes, God, and thank you. Ironically, nothing in the creation was like God except for them, and even that was not enough honor for them to be content. They wanted more. 
Our very existence renders us indebted to God, friends. Even before we sin, even before sin in the garden, even before original sin, Adam and Eve owed God their lives, their existence. There was a debtedness to God. And they owed him worship because he is truly who he says he is. He is truly a holy and perfect God. I found a, a list of, uh, of errors that Adam and Eve made. It's from Zacharias Ursinus, who wrote a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a similar tool by which we might learn and grow closer to the Lord. He wrote six terrible offenses that accompanied the eating of the fruit. So I wanted to kind of briefly look at those before we move on to the next question. First of all, we see in the eating of the fruit pride, ambition, and an admiration of the self. So ironically, this tempter, Satan, the serpent that slithered into their lives and did so much damage and deception, he duplicated his own sin in these human beings that were made in the image of God. Unable to attack the person and character of God himself, he tried to attack the image of God. And he did so by trying to perpetuate the very sin and error that he had committed in heaven, which caused him to be banished out. Adam and Eve growing proud and having an ambition to be greater than what they had already been made to be, having an admiration of themselves and a desire to be exalted, were not content to let God be what only God can be. Secondly, we see this, the error of unbelief. They had a lack of faith in this God. And a lack of faith in a good and holy God who has given us no reason to doubt him is sin in and of itself. Thirdly, they had a contempt and disobedience to God. There was an abject disregard for the covenant of works which they had been brought into by the gracious, loving act of God entering into that covenant with them through Adam. They cared not for the promises that were made and for the stipulations that were delivered to them. They did what they wanted to do and disregarded that covenant relationship. Fourthly, there was ingratitude for benefits received. They had been blessed so greatly. They, they, they should have been so very grateful to their God and instead they acted as though God owed them something. They didn't act as though they were in the debt of God. They acted as though this knowledge that they did not yet have was somehow their right, that they should get it, even though they had done nothing to earn it. Fifthly, there was an unnaturalness to the way that they behaved in taking the fruit that God had told them not to take. They left their natural station, and in doing so, they also lacked love for their posterity. In other words, God had told them that this would bring death into the creation. He'd also told them that they were supposed to go forth and multiply, which means they knew they were going to have children. They knew that there would be little Adams and Eves running, running around in the garden eventually. Their actions didn't just affect them. It affected all of the creation, and it affected every human being that would come after them, which we're going to look at in some more depth in just a moment. And sixthly, their actions were just plainly apostasy. Now, apostasy is the general term for calling what is bad good and what is good bad. You can kind of colloquially call apostasy the opposite of amen. When we say amen, we're saying, whatever you're saying, God, I'm saying yes to that. I, so be it. I believe what you have declared. My heart is lined up with what you have said is true. That is what amen literally means. 
When we pray together and we say amen at the end, that means that what my brother or sister has just prayed, that's my prayer too. I'm grateful for it. And whatever you, God, decide to do in answer to these prayers, I am receiving it already even before I see what it is because I trust you and I know that you're good. But apostasy is the opposite of amen. Apostasy says, I do not trust what you're giving me as good. Instead of being faithful to you, I will rebel and go my own way. I will determine my path apart from your truth, apart from your authority, apart from your wisdom. So these are six aspects or facets of the sin that was committed in the garden. Question 18 establishes the seriousness of the offense. Question 19 presses beyond that to help us see the scope of the damage that was done. Question 19 asks, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And I wish I could say that the answer was no to that, right? I wish we could just say that Adam and Eve had their chance and they blew it, but every other person's got their chance too. But that, friends, is not how covenants work when you're dealing with God and man. Sadly, Adam acted on more than his own behalf. As the first man, he was what we call the federal head of the first covenant between God and man. And as the head, he was representative of every human being who would descend from him. Now, we spoke a moment ago about how it seems such a small thing that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit, and that constituted the fall. But imagery is important in the Bible. I hope we pick up on that as we read through it together. What does fruit do? Fruit is a complex seed, isn't it? Fruit grows. It reproduces. So the sin of disobedience, if perpetuated by Adam, could in no way be the only one of its kind. It would be the first of millions. It would be a seed of sin that would then go on to reap a harvest of disobedience and rebellion. It would give life to rebellion in the human race and create an infectious counterculture mentality to what God had labored six days to develop for man. Part of God's calling for Adam and Eve was to be not only representative image bearers, but to fill the creation with representative image bearers. And now in rebellion to God, he has tainted that calling he has corrupted his ability to do that well. Genesis, oh, I skipped that slide too. Sorry, I'm really bad with slides, guys. So we saw that one earlier. Somebody else usually does it for you. Yeah, I don't feel too bad about skipping that one. You already read it earlier, huh? Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. So this sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden was not a sin that stopped with them. Because we descend from Adam, the guilt of his sin affects each of us. And because Adam was the federal head of the covenant, God spoke the terms of the covenant to Adam. That responsibility does not pass to us through Eve's line. It passes to us through Adam's line. That's going to become very important as we read on. We are sons of iniquity by birthright. 
And so all men and all women are tainted by Adam's error. Now we spoke a minute ago of Job, and Job had a friend named Eliphaz, and he was one of three friends that gave much hateful and discouraging advice to Job, but not everything that Eliphaz said was wrong. In Job 15, 14, he says this, What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? What he's saying there is a truth that we all need to come to terms with, even though it is a humbling and sobering reality, that because we descend from Adam and Eve, we don't have hope for righteousness on our own. We don't have the capacity for it. We have already participated in the breaking of the covenant because our first father broke the covenant of God and brought iniquity upon the whole race. Even righteous Job needed a savior. None of us is without sin. Um, For a good portion of the rest of our time here, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is a section in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul gives us great commentary and insight into this reality that is rooted in Genesis 3, but is so crucial to our understanding of what Christ did as our Savior and Redeemer. So in chapter 5 of Romans... Let me begin reading for us in verse 12. We're going to bounce around this chapter a little bit here. I don't have the time to exposit the whole thing. I wish that I did. But starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now this passage from the Apostle Paul shows us a number of important truths. I just want to look at a few of them here. The first part of 12 says that sin came into the world through one man. Who are we talking about? By this point in the sermon, we should know we're talking about Adam, right? It was with Adam that God made that covenant in the garden. A covenant with potential blessings and curses. Had Adam fulfilled the covenant of works, the devil would have been defeated right there in that moment. Had he refused to take the fruit, I believe even if Eve had eaten the fruit and Adam had persisted, then he would have not passed the sin sin nature onto us or this tendency to sin. The devil would have been defeated and thrown out of the garden and those who descended from Adam would have benefited greatly from that victory. But unfortunately, Adam did not keep the covenant. And the curses within it affected not only Eve and himself, but all of his posterity as well. So then Romans 5, looking at verse 18, which skips uh, forward a little bit, says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So this reinforces this idea that all of Adam's descendants are his seed, and they bear his same fruit. That is why David in Psalm 51 declared that he was brought forth from his mother's womb in iniquity. How is that possible? He had not even had a chance to sin yet. Possibility is only explained in the fact that David descended from Adam like we all do. So sin is not just what we do to break God's law. It's the fact that we are born lawbreakers as the offspring of a lawbreaker. Sin's guilt is baked right into us. Second half of verse 12. And death entered into the world through sin. 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin was passed on to all of Adam's posterity, and you can't get the sin without getting the consequences of sin. So the wages of sin being death, death then also spread through all creation. And we see the very first evidence of this even before they got out of the garden. They had made for themselves these shaky fig leaves as a covering for their shame. Uh, they had no reason to cover their nakedness before that because there was nothing wrong with them as human beings. But now we cover ourselves rightfully because there is shame to humanity. We have offended the living God. And so we should be aware of that. And our clothing should in some ways remind us of that. But after sewing these fig leaves together, uh, God determined to, to change their covering. And he killed an animal in the garden. And from their skins, the first death of an animal showed that the wages of sin being death was not just for humanity, but was for all of the creation. We don't have even an inkling of understanding of how far-reaching that was. But because the creation is completely under the dominion of, of man, everything that was in our care was impacted by the ripple effect of our sin. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We see two important realities here. That even if a person doesn't seem to be a sinful man or woman, even if their outward projection is one of consideration and care for others, maybe they're a good citizen, that does not make them sin-free. Even if their sin was not as obvious as the sin of Adam, they are still transgressors of the law of God. Because even a good deed done with no regard for the God who is himself love and truth, then that good deed counts for nothing. If we don't honor the God who is himself the very basis of love and truth, then we are ignoring the very foundation of what is good. We're trying to be good in and of ourselves, which we cannot. So we see that here from verse 14. We also see that Adam was a type of one to come. And what that means is that Adam pointed forward to something that was going to be like him, but would be better than him. He was a type of Christ. Adam's life, in some ways, foreshadowed the life of Christ because Adam was a representative whose actions spoke for all of the race of humanity. Jesus would come later and would be described as a new and a better Adam. All of those who are in Adam are in sin and subject to the wages of sin, which is death. But when we who have been awakened by the Holy Spirit see the light of Christ's sacrifice, understand that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he came and took on a human body and lived perfectly according to the law, when we trust in Jesus Christ, give him our respect and honor, we give him our broken life, and he gives us grace, an undeserved gift of forgiveness, and the righteousness that is his becomes our righteousness, then we are no longer under the headship of Adam. We have left the covenant which has been broken and is worthless now, which is a covenant that only leads to death. We've been put into a new covenant, and that new covenant has a new head, that new Adam, Jesus Christ. Amen. Everyone in existence is in one of those two covenants, whether they recognize it or not. Amen. God's not running around with a sheet of paper saying, sign up if you want to be a part of a covenant. 
you are a part of this covenantal system. This covenantal system is the reality by which we live. So every human being is in the covenant of Adam until God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wakes them up with the gospel message of truth and shows them that they need to be in the better covenant with Christ. Returning to Genesis, we read just a little bit after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden about their first children. Even though they had failed to keep the covenant commands in the garden, they had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't totally forget their covenant. They went forth to fill the earth, to multiply, and Eve gave birth to a son, Cain. Shortly after that, she gave birth to another son named Abel. And as we read through this historical account in Genesis, we see that their first children came at some point to give an offering of worship to God. The offerings that they gave were not completely the same, although both did give the first fruits of what they had to offer. And interestingly enough, God was more pleased with the offering of the younger son than he was with the offering of the oldest son. Now this is a, actually a pattern that is set here in Genesis, and we'll see it play out many more times over the course of Scripture. Ishmael was the first son, but because Ishmael was the son of Abraham by a handmaiden and not by Sarah, the wife of promise, God favored Isaac. Isaac was considered the true son. We see it with Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first, a pair of twins born, but because Jacob was craftier than Esau, he was able to secure the birthright from him, and the line of Israel comes through Jacob instead of Esau. David was overlooked at first as the youngest brother of many, and yet God chose him because he doesn't look to the outside. He looks to the heart. So too Jesus, as the second Adam, is better than the first now, that's just a side note. In jealousy, Cain sees that God approves of his younger brother Abel's sacrifice. And in anger, he kills his brother Abel in the field. The first murder, in fact, we can probably estimate this is probably the first death of a human being, although we don't know that for sure, occurs. Can you imagine the weight of guilt that that brought upon the hearts of Adam and Eve? Cain and Abel's parents, when they looked upon this lifeless form of their son and knew in their heart of hearts that they, because of their rebellion, brought this about into the world. Every other son would go on to live out the same kind of rebellion in similar ways. We would all become breakers of the law of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 47 to 49 says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we, meaning those who trust in Jesus Christ, meaning Christians, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a gracious, gracious observation Paul makes there in those verses. All have sinned just like Adam and fallen short of the glory of God. And is there an exception to that? When you look at the whole history of the world, every human being has broken God's law. It is innate in us. 
You see it in the littlest child. You see it in the wisest old person. Still a battle against this temptation to sin. Is there any exception to this law that man is but a sinner? Praise God, there is one exception. Jesus, the second and better Adam, did not inherit the sinful nature that we did. Now the key to the exemption of Jesus is this. His special birth meant that he did not descend from Adam. We know this from the Christmas story and there's so much significance to it, not just for its novelty, but for its, sinful, or for its significant biblical and theological impact. Jesus was a man. He was born under the law. He had a full human nature. But his mother was a virgin when he was born. That means that Adam was not his spiritual ancestor. Jesus did not inherit Adam's failure. He was born without that. So we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is born legitimately from the womb of a human woman. But he has no human father. His father is in fact God. Luke 1.35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You know, every once in a while, you'll, you'll hear somebody come up and start to make the argument that we don't really have to hold to the virgin birth. You know, that's probably not that significant of a doctrine. It could be that there was just some embarrassment there, and maybe they were, you know, they broke the law before they got married. It's just not that big of a deal. It is a huge deal. Amen. If it wasn't for the fact that God brought our Savior through the, the virgin womb of Mary, then we would be in huge trouble. Because any man, any messenger that he would have sent, just like every prophet before and after, every one of them would have carried that guilt burden on their shoulders that they inherited from Adam. But Jesus did not. Unhindered by the curse, Christ went on to do what the original Adam should have done. He kept the law in every respect. He fulfilled the commands of God. He never wavered once in his faithfulness to the Father. Everything that is good, he called good. Everything that was bad, he called bad. His life, of course, was more than a display for us. It was not just an expression to impress. It was the inauguration of a new and better covenant. Because that perfect life that he lived, he then willingly gave and offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice for broken sinners like us, for people condemned because of what somebody else did, the only solution is to be rescued by what somebody else did. Jesus Christ gave his life so that many would be saved. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, put this on the screen for you. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see that action of the second and better Adam, that he inaugurates a greater covenant 
one that is not broken, one that is fulfilled in his obedience. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Rather than trying to justify our personal failures by pointing the finger at the first man and the first woman, lamenting, oh, if Adam and Eve had just done it right, rather than putting it on them, let us feel rightful shame for the sin that we have not only inherited, but that we have also committed. Let us hate our sin. Let us see that the devastating effect that it is having not only on our own lives, but also the whole world over which we are supposed to have dominion. Let us hate our sin. Let us understand that the solution to that sin is not inherent in us. That we, by our own wisdom and power, could never overcome this inherent deficiency within us. All the penance in the world cannot undo it. All the good deeds and generosity cannot erase the fact that we have done shame to the name of God. There is only one thing that can do that, and it is the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, who came triumphantly to overcome sin, to defeat death in the grave, and to rise anew with a promise that all who would enter into covenant with him will also rise one day anew. Friends, unless Jesus comes back before we run out of years, all of us are still going to physically die. And that's not such a bad thing. Because the bodies that we live in now are affected by the sinfulness of the world that we are stuck in. But those who trust in Jesus Christ, the better Adam, have the promise that a new body will be waiting for them when God comes to judge the world once and for all and to rid it of all the sin that Adam and Eve introduced to it. That we will have a perfected body that is not as good as God because we will never be what God is, but will be fit to worship Him forever and ever. Amen. What a glory that we have in learning about even something as difficult to think about as sin, knowing that we are implied in it, that it shows us our guilt. But to know these things is to know the solution for sin as well. Praise be to God for His Son, Jesus Christ. We have some time uh, for questions. I know I've preached a little longer than I thought I was going to today. I got a little bit carried away. But uh, Chris, you got some questions back there? Yes. 